This is the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the King of glory. He is the resurrecting Savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead they got a servant, crucified and lifted high. And the marks on his hands have just marked for salvation. Some things in life are just simply incompatible, and today we're going to see that in this passage of Scripture, but I want to illustrate this because maybe it'll help this truth stick with you because this is going to be kind of a theme for the next few weeks. And so for anybody who's probably younger than maybe 15 or so, you may not, although uh, cassette tapes are making a comeback it seems, but um, this is a cassette uh, player, and back in the 80s, I uh, kind of collected uh, quite a few cassette tapes because, you know, as I like music and as I got older and could uh, earn more money and buy my music myself, I began to get more and more cassette tapes. And so back in the day, you know, you didn't have a nice little iPod shuffle or something to run with. I mean, you strapped a Walkman on your side and, and this thing j jarred up and down. And yeah, I think a tape would hold maybe 12 songs at the most and you had to flip it over halfway through. And what a great experience it was. And and, and so as throughout the 80s, you know, I got me a nice little collection of, of cassettes, but then something happened in the uh, early 2000s, right? Um, they began to make these other things called CDs, and these things began to come out, and I didn't know this, I read this, that in the early days, a CD would hold more than a hard drive on a computer, um, and I don't remember that at all, but that's crazy um, how limited our hard drives were at, those t at that time. So, so, you know what happened was, as CDs became more and more popular, then we got uh, cassettes started to be discontinued, and so eventually, this was all we had. Not that these were any better to run with back in those days, because these were actually bigger and more awkward in some ways, but, but uh, these were the, the thing. Anybody know what CD this was, by the way, Brendan? You know this one, huh? Anybody? Anybody? Third day, yeah, very good. Third day, yeah, you read it though, right there on there. Okay, cheater. Um, and, and so I, I collected a bunch of these, but unfortunately, these were not compatible with this anymore. You know, no matter how much I hoped or wished that I didn't have to buy the CDs again that I had in cassette tapes, it, it just wasn't going to work. I mean, it just obviously isn't going to work in this thing, all right? Even if it could fit, it wouldn't work. It was a whole different thing, it was a whole different technology that was completely incompatible with this player. And so what happened was uh, you had to get rid of all your cassettes, throw them away, most of mine are gone now, and we had to start buying CDs. And so in the 2000s, you, I collected, you probably collected many, many CDs, and then what happens? You know, MP3 pl uh, comes out pretty soon, you know, maybe in mid-2007, 2006, somewhere in there, uh, you begin to get MP3 players, and eventually these things are pretty much obsolete as well. Um, and so they're not compatible with what we have today. And so just completely incompatible. No compatibility here between the two of these things. So I want you to remember this as an object lesson today for what Jesus is going to talk about, which is incompatible in his day and age. What he was talking to and what he began to present was something new, something different, that the leaders of the day were not aware of, although they had Scripture, they had Old Testament, they had prophecies, and had they been in tune with God in His ways, then they would have seen Jesus for who He was. And they would have believed Him by, as He authenticated 
who he was through his miracles and through the amazing things that we're going to talk about over the next weeks in the book of Mark that he did. And so the Jewish leaders of the day, as we saw last week, called the Pharisees, they were stuck in their version of what they thought Judaism should be. And when Jesus came along and began presenting the true gospel, the true what God had given through him, God in the flesh, they would not accept it. And somewhere along the line in the early church days, some people wanted to do this number. They wanted to say, well, let's take this form of Judaism that we're going to talk about today, and let's combine this, or this form of Judaism with, let's combine it with what Jesus said, and let's come up with a hodgepodge of something that maybe we can be happy with both. But Jesus is going to show that what he brings in and the new covenant and the things of the old covenant are not compatible with one another. Jesus was doing something amazing, something new, and the system that ruled Judaism at that point was taken back. They could not understand it. They could not comprehend it. It made no sense to them whatsoever. And so as we look in Mark again today, we're going to see this truth. We're going to see that the gospel of Jesus and this this version of Judaism that existed during the first century, seeking righteousness through human effort, through human um, uh, righteousness, through our human strength, these things were just not compatible with one another. And so Judaism had morphed into this religion that was concerned with self-righteousness, which wasn't accurate to the teaching of Moses and the law, but it had morphed into that. In our text today, Jesus is going to expose that, and throughout the gospel we're going to see that Jesus was about heart righteousness. And if you've studied the Gospels before, you know that the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' words were all about what God cares about, what's in your heart, and that works its way out to our external. And so Judaism of the first century was concerned with external behavior, just the show, what it looks like on the outside, and the Gospel was concerned with the internal attitudes. And so let's see in Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through 22, let's see Jesus' interaction again with these groups called the Pharisees, and in this case, the John's disciples. Verse 18, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they, are, they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth to an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and it is a worse tear, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst in the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospels and how that we can see the life of Jesus. We can see the way he acted, the way that he interacted, the things that he valued, the people that he confronted, those who were not accepted, those who would not accept him, God. And I pray that we will learn from this text and our journey through Mark, that we'll learn to be more like Jesus through the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit. We pray in his name. Amen. If you were here last week, Jesus was called, had called one of his disciples, a guy named Levi. And we talked about how that Levi was a tax collector. 
And for our day and age, if you weren't here, you, you just maybe don't sense the weight of the fact that Jesus would call such a one to be one of his followers because the Levi, or Levi was a tax collector who were the most hated people of all the Jewish society because these people were sellouts to their own people. These were people who claimed to be Jew by nationality. They were Jews by nationality, but they had turned and began to work for the Romans and help the Romans. And then on top of that, then they made their living by exploiting the Jewish people out of extra taxes and more taxes. That's how they made their living. And so they collected for the Roman government, but on top of that, they made money. And, and so th this was a scene that Jesus had called Levi. What did Levi do? He ran out and he got all his friends together and they came and they had a meal with Jesus. Some commentators even think that Jesus hosted this party. We don't know that for certain, but how amazing that would be if Jesus was one hosting all these tax collectors and sinners. And so it's understandable that the self-righteous people today, the they would not get this. And so the Pharisees ask, why would Jesus do this? Why would he eat with these tax collectors and sinners? Because these people don't follow the law. They don't follow the way that things should be done. Why would you even have any interaction with these people? And what was Jesus' response from last week? Jesus said, I didn't come for those people who think they're well. I came for those people who realize they have a need. They're sick. And Jesus said, I came to, for the lost. I came for those who understood they needed a righteousness beyond their own. And so we're going to see this as this passage unfolds, what Jesus is talking about here, and kind of just combined with last week is what he's told these Pharisees and these self-righteous people. And he's, he's telling these Pharisees who truly thought, and sometimes we look at the, the Pharisees as if they're this, these guys who are so out of touch. And the truth is, they're, in their heart, they probably thought they were doing the right thing. They probably thought that by adding extra things to the law to make sure the laws wasn't, they weren't broken, that they were even going even above what God expected for a good reason. And that reason was because they understood that God was holy. And they understood that, uh, that God hates sin. But the mistake they made was begin to feel as if they could accomplish things. And that the things that they were doing, these external behaviors, were where they found their righteousness. And so it had morphed into something that it was never supposed to be. And so they insisted on this stringent separation from not only the Gentile nations and the Gentile people, but a majority of the Pharisees even looked down upon their own Jewish people who would not adhere to all the externals that they had created and they had come up with. And so they believed that in order to maintain holiness, they could have no dealing with these people who were sinners, people who refused to follow their interpretations of the Mosaic Law. And in fact, there was a time period there where many religious people of the day felt like that if they could keep the Torah, if they could keep the law, if they could do everything right just for one day, then Jesus or the Messiah would come, who we know would be Jesus, but they would not accept him as Jesus. And so that's to give you a little bit of understanding of why they would react the way they did when they saw Jesus socializing with these outcasts and these people of their society. And so they come and they say, Look, John's disciples and the Pharisees, man, they're fasting. You're doing anything but fasting, Jesus. I mean, you're sitting there, you're having a party with these terrible people, these awful people. And these disciples of John the Baptist, John the Baptist was in prison at this point, and so uh, these disciples of John probably were all about fasting at this point because, I mean, their leader was in prison. He was locked up and ultimately would give his life. 
And, and so they didn't understand this. And the truth of the matter is they should have been following Jesus at this point rather than following, continuing following the ways of John. And in their mind, because John was a guy who was all about sacrifice, and he was a, he's a guy who came out of the desert wearing uh, you know, awful clothing and, and eating a poor man's diet, and, and he was given to self-denial. And so these followers of John were probably emulating John, and they thought that that's the way that they should respond and they should act. And so that's the way they acted. So it, it took them by surprise that Jesus and the people who were following Jesus at the time were not doing the same thing. And then the Pharisees... These guys were known for not just fasting on occasion, they fasted habitually twice a week. Twice a week, they fasted. And so these guys set themselves up, even though the law of Moses only required fasting uh, in Leviticus only on, during the time of, the, of, of atonement, during leading up to atonement, and the time of atonement is the only time that Scripture requires fasting. But these guys created a culture that was so prevalent and, and such a part of the DNA of the Jewish culture there that, that everyone who was right with God should be fasting, should be doing what they were doing. And so they had created this big show of, of their fasting, and they saw it as a badge of their personal piety. And these guys would dress up in sackcloth, which was basically a kind of a burlap-type material, and they would walk around appearing all sad, and, and they would put ash on their face to make it even uh, like white and, and look like they were suffering and how awful and pitiful they were. They wanted to look as sad as possible. And why would Jesus not be on board with that, right? Why would Jesus not be on board with the repentance and the fasting that these guys were about? Because they wanted to get God's attention. Why would Jesus not want to do that? Why aren't your disciples seeking God's favor through repentance and separation from these people who are anti-God's law, who are anything but on board with holiness and God's righteousness? In their mind, that's what they thought. And so they came to Jesus and they questioned Jesus about this. And it's, it's awesome how Jesus responded here in verse 19. He says, Can the wedding guests fast? While the bridegroom is with them, as long as the bridegroom is with them, they cannot fast. And what Jesus is giving here is that during the uh, Jewish time period, during a wedding, uh, the, the couple, they wouldn't go on a honeymoon like what we would do. What they did was they opened their home for a week-long celebration. And so there was all this kind of fasting and feasting, I'm sorry, and celebration going on. And for the average Jewish Joe at this point, this was the happiest week of their life because Friends and family were coming by to celebrate their wedding with them. And the bride and the groom, they were like king and queen for the week. In fact, uh, culture tells us, uh, history tells us that some of them actually wore crowns during this week to celebrate their special time. And friends of the bride and the friends of the groom, they would stop by and be part of this feast. And they were exempt at this point from the religious fasting that was to happen during the week, during this time. And so they were exempt from having to do these religious duties and fasting because they were celebrating with their friends, celebrating the marriage. And so Jesus is comparing his own work, his public ministry, his presence with his followers, as this wedding celebration that's going on, which he is the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. What an amazing picture. What an amazing thing for us to think about. Because in the Old Testament times, God is the bridegroom and Israel is the bride. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says that, that 
he's now the bridegroom. So one thing he says is, I'm God. Look, that would have been shocking to them that he would have claimed to have been the bridegroom. And then we learn in the New Testament later on that the new bride of Christ is who? It's the church. So the bridegroom is Jesus, and the bride is his church. And so given the Old Testament context of this metaphor, Jesus is claiming he's not only the Messiah, but he's God himself. And we aren't just friends who stop by the bridegroom. We're the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. What an awesome, awesome picture. And obviously, the people who are hearing this, this wasn't all unfolded right before them. At this point, we'll see this progressively as we go through the New Testament, that this picture becomes more evident. But I think it's, it's an awesome picture for us to kind of think about and talk about today. In and, and verse 20, Jesus gives us a hint about the future. He says, the day will come when the bridegroom himself is taking away, and then they will fast in that day. And so... Just like in biblical times, uh, there, there was a, like an engagement period, what we would call, when the bride and groom were separated until the wedding. And so the bride of Christ and her bridegroom, us, the church, is during the church age. We're separated. And what was the responsibility of the bride during the time of the engagement was to remain faithful to her betrothed husband, to remain faithful. And so the picture here, when Jesus returns, will be reunited with the bridegroom in an official wedding ceremony that we see in Revelation. And this will take place as we enter an eternal union with Christ, and this bride and this groom picture is actualized in the new heaven and the new earth. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. So I'm going to give you like three things real quick that I think are just amazing. There's so many more that we could talk about from this bridegroom imagery. But I want to say one, first of all, is the amazing intimacy this shows between us and Christ. What we call this, and we talked about this a lot in Colossians, is our union with Christ. What does that mean, our union with Christ? Well, one thing it means is that when God looks at you, he sees your life hidden in Jesus' perfect life and his perfect obedience. When Jesus looks at his children, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, he sees Jesus He sees Jesus' life. He sees his perfect obedience. Just like the song we sang right before the message, that nothing that I do or all the efforts I make can earn anything before God. It's all Jesus. It's all him. And that's the spiritual reality here that we see in our small minds and our limited understanding can't comprehend that we're truly, really joined with Jesus. In the crucified and resurrected Jesus, we're joined with him. We have a union with Christ. And there's no better news for the Christian than that, that we have a union with Christ. And we'll spend our lifetime thinking and pondering that and trying to realize the full significance of that. And it'll be amazing one day in eternity where we actually truly understand what that means and the impact that has and how that a holy, righteous God who there is no way, nothing that we could ever do or earn or try or sacrifice or fast or pray that could ever, ever allow us to come into his presence. And it's only because of the God-man, Jesus Christ, and the righteousness that he imputes to us, not because of our efforts, not because of work, but simply and totally because of what he did, and we put our faith in him. That's the gospel. 
And I, I, I tell people this all the time. Satan has a way of blinding people to that very, very simple truth. It's amazing to me the number of people, maybe even in this room right here, right now, probably, there's many, who if you're asked, what is the gospel? You've been asked this numerous, or you've heard it numerous times, you've read it, you've heard messages, but yet you might default to the fact is, well, I hope that I get in one day. Or, you know, if I, you know I, I just hope that I can make it. Or I hope that I can achieve it. And you see, anything that we do to says it's about what I do or what I contribute, what we're doing is we're taking the old and we're mixing it with the new. We're saying, I need to take this old mindset of taking what was and trying to mix it with the new, this grace that God has given to us only through Jesus. And now i got to add my works and my effort and some way combine these two and maybe I'll make it in. But the gospel says there's nothing that you offer or give. Nothing that you can do to earn God. It's all Jesus. And so this union with Christ, the, the depths of it are so incredible because that is the only way that we have any standing whatsoever before God is because of Jesus. And Jesus will never turn his back on those who are truly his children, ever. He'll never turn his back on his bride. He's our strength. He's our life. He's our confidence. He's our blessedness. Everything that we have has been given to us because of Christ. We haven't earned anything. We haven't merited anything. And so maybe the gospel that you thought you knew was something where you combined your efforts to Christ's grace, and then hopefully you measure up to God. The old and the new don't mix. It's all Jesus, all his righteousness. And we'll see in a few minutes, that doesn't mean that effort and grace are not compatible, just the opposite. We'll talk about that in a minute. The second thing, the, the imagery I want you to see from this, to be united with Christ is what it means to be saved. Okay, we know that. But what, sometimes we make this imagery in the, in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, just pretty much all individualistic about us. This picture, while it is about us being united with Christ, it means a lot about what the church is. I mean, mostly really what the church is. Who we are collectively as the body of Christ. And so, while it's good that we have a personal relationship with Jesus, we talk about that a lot. I'll mention it more in the end of this message of spending time with Him. The truth is, the bride of Christ is the collective church. And I think in response to maybe some traditions that have been um, abused and some, uh, some certain religions that have maybe made a little too much of this, misunderstanding the simplicity of the gospel, we've rejected totally the, the church's authority and anything to do with the community of believers and how that God uh, honors you in community, and the, the Scriptures know nothing of a Christian who says, I don't like organized religion. I don't like institutionalized religion. It's just me and God doing this thing together. Scripture, that's incomprehensible in Scripture that that could be true. There, there's just no way that you can ever find in Scripture some individualistic me and God sort of faith. And, and I think one verse that really brings it home, although we can look at many, many, 1 John 2, 19, 
where it talks about those who have abandoned the church, and it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they, were, they, that they all were not of us. And so they abandoned the church community. They said, I don't, we don't need community. We'll do this on our own. And John says, no, they showed their true colors. If they're not with us, they're not of us. And in our day and age, it's a little tougher because we have so many options for community and church. And while at that time, the options were very few, it was one or two communities, three house churches, four house churches in a bigger area, maybe early on. But the principle is still the same. It's not just about going somewhere and sending a seat, watching a screen, and, and being like, I've done my duty, I'll see you next week. This is, about, this is about a community of believers that live out the gospel together. This is about opening our lives, opening our hearts, opening our homes to one another as we seek to be more like Jesus. And we sharpen one another and strengthen one another, encourage one another. We are the body and bride of Christ. And so the body of Christ, when somebody's down, they need a hug. We hug them. We serve as Jesus at that moment. When somebody needs encouraged, we encourage them as Jesus would encourage, just like Jesus. When somebody needs maybe some tough love, we're there to give the tough love. That's community. But when you sit on the fringes, and you're maybe a, a just a, an attender of church, you, you know, you come to church to get, not to give, then by no means is anybody ever speaking into my life because, you know, who are you to have a right to tell me anything? But see, that version of church is not church. The New Testament version of church, the body and bride of Christ, that's something totally different. It welcomes Jesus speaking imperfectly through a human being of course with much grace given both directions but nevertheless it welcomes that when we're walking in the spirit third thing this bride and groom imagery we have great reason to celebrate as we wait and as jesus talks here in this verse verse 20 fasting is a tool for enriching our enjoyment of jesus fasting is a tool to enrich our enjoyment of Jesus. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away. Jesus returned to his father. And then they will fast in that day. They will fast in that day. That's convicting because the truth is, most of us, fasting is not part of our spiritual rhythm, our spiritual routine. But Jesus in Scripture says, it's kind of expected. Now, Scripture doesn't give us what days of the week to do it or how many times to do it. But sometimes when we, when we don't have specifics like that, then we just throw it out all together. Oh, well, it must not be a big deal. Well, Jesus fasted. We should fast. Jesus says, when I'm gone, they will fast, and we should fast. And so fasting can be an expression of finding our greatest pleasure and enjoyment in life from God. That's not the only purpose behind fasting, but it is a purpose, is finding our expression, our greatest joy, and our enjoyment in life from God. So the picture, as the bride waits for her bridegroom in joyful anticipation, and she longs for the day for the bridegroom to return. And so fasting is part of that waiting, that anticipation.
And so joy, we wait with joy. We, we, we pursue joy as we pursue Jesus. And our pursuit of Jesus equals joy. And so you, you get the, the difference here, Pharisees, ashes, sad, pious, want everybody to see, badge of honor, I'm fasting, seeking God, repentance, look at me, see me in my misery. But the New Testament tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so while there's tough times and we look at sin and the state of the world, there's times to grieve and fast and repent for the sins of us, our community, and our nation. Yet it still should be, there should be a joy as we look toward the bridegroom to return. To come back for his children. And fasting is part of that. And so our joy, for sure, won't be perfect in this life. We have strains, we have struggles, we fight with anxieties and hurts and battles. But what do we have? We have Jesus we have a union with Christ. We have a spirit that was given to us as a, as a friend and a counselor. And so when anxieties and stress and difficulties and pain come our way, what do we know? I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this. I have Jesus. I have community of believers around me. And even as we wait for Christ's physical return, we remember that we are in Christ. We are in him. And all the pain that we experience is intended to move us to the goal of being holy as God is holy. That's the perspective of a mature believer, one who's growing. It under, he understands, she understands that even in the difficulties of life, even in the awkwardness of community, even in the, the pitfalls and the struggles and the difficulties of just living life in a broken world, that we understand that God takes all these things and he uses it for our holiness. And we can find joy even in the midst of struggle if that's our mindset. And so he says fasting should be part of this. He, Jesus says, I'm going to be gone. At that day you do fast. What is biblical fasting? All right, Let me just give you a definition because a lot of times fasting is a very like, weird thing for a lot of people. They don't really get it and understand it. Biblical fasting is when we abstain from anything that we would miss out or miss and would get our attention if it were not part of our life for a period of time. Let me read that again. Biblical fasting is when we abstain from anything that we would miss and would get our attention if, we were not, if it were not part of our life for a period of time. And so we have regular periods where we give up. And here at Grace, we promote the first Sunday. Is there anything magical about the first Sunday? Absolutely not. Is there anything magical about fasting? Absolutely not. But it's one way of telling God that your priority is to be alone with him and seek him above even the basic necessities of life. Even the basic necessities of life. So we talk a lot about the spiritual discipline of prayer and Bible study. You know, scripture doesn't prescribe exactly when we have our Bible study, how many days a week we do a Bible study, how many uh, quiet times or devotions we're supposed to do, how that's supposed to look. That is a spiritual discipline that allows you space for God to work. And so that's why we talk about it all the time. But we never say, you know, unless you do a quiet time five out of seven days, then, you know, God's not happy with you. See, that's being like the Pharisees who were adding to the law. Make it even more difficult to receive God's love. But the flip side 
of saying, you know, grace, I love grace, man. I can just, not grace church, but grace in general. I hope you love grace. Um, is God didn't prescribe it, so therefore it must not be important. So if, if, I, if I get out of bed on time, then I'll, I'll spend time with God. Or if I, you know, I'm not too tired in the evening or there's nothing better to do, then I'll, I'll spend some time with God. I love grace. It's just, you know, just kind of whatever feels right to me. That's why it's called spiritual disciplines. Because it takes discipline. It doesn't just come based upon how you feel at the moment. If we did everything based on how we feel at the moment, you know, it'd be a pretty sad state. I mean, the world would be a lot worse off than it is already, and the church community would look exactly like the world. But we have spiritual disciplines, and that motivates us to spend time with God, to seek God in the stillness and quiet. It, it motivates us to want to have times of fasting. When the first Sunday rolls around, we, that's important to us. We want to, to give up something that day that will allow us to focus more upon Jesus. And so fasting opens up space in our body and our soul to engage more deeply with God. Second thing, fasting reminds us that we're not as strong as we think we are. We're just not as strong as we think we are, and fasting is a good reminder of that. Fasting also helps us remember that we are totally dependent upon Jesus to enable us to grow in holiness. And another thing, which there could be many of these again, it reveals to us which kingdom is most important in our life. Which kingdom is most important to you? Is it the kingdom of the earthly stuff, or is it God's kingdom? That's what fasting does. Whether it's fasting from TV or food, or fasting from uh, something that you really enjoy doing, these things remind us what's most important to us at that point. I took down some great quotes from three different guys that I thought I'd just read about fasting. Richard Foster says, More than any other single discipline, Fasting reveals the things that control us. Hear that. More than any other single spiritual discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. David Mathis says, Only as we voluntarily embrace the pain of an empty stomach do we see how much we've allowed our belly to be our God. Only as we voluntarily embrace the pain of an empty stomach do we see how much we've allowed our belly to be our God? And then Dallas Willard makes it really practical here. He says, few people arise in the morning as hungry for God as they do for cornflakes or toast or eggs. You get the point here? Fasting is a discipline, and it reveals what really is valuable to us, what really matters to us. And Jesus says, there's coming a day where you will fast. He tells the Pharisees, now is not the time, because I'm here. God in the flesh. God became flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. At that point, he says, hey, now's the time to celebrate. And then to get back to this illustration about mixing the two together, the old versus new, he gives, he gives two parables. One is of clothing. He says in verse 21, no one sews in a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the, new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And so the, basically the idea of this is you can't use a new piece of cloth to patch a hole on old clothing or the tear will become worse. You can't mix the, his point, you can't mix the old and the new. You try to piece them together, you try to put them together, it's just going to be worse, it's going to be destructive, it's not going to come out well. And, the, and so Jesus was bringing in this, this new thing, he was initiating his new covenant. And he says you can't take this tired, religious, sour 
thing that the Pharisees had going on here that they called religion, and they thought that God was honored by that. And you can't combine that, Jesus says, with what I'm doing when I'm showing in my new covenant. You can't make these two things compatible with another. You've got to throw out the old. And here I'm telling you what I'm doing and what I'm bringing in. And then he gives another illustration. He uses wine. He says, no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So the idea here is hard for us to relate to, but in ancient cultures, the skins of goats were used to hold wine because they had this natural elasticity to them. They would stretch out, and so as the wine fermented, the, 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 the wineskin was able to expand and hold the wine. However, if you took an old wineskin, one that had been around for a while, was brittle, it was starting to show its age, and you took that and you poured new wine into the old wineskin, what's going to happen? It's just going to burst. And not only would the wineskin be destroyed, but the wine would be lost. And so again, his point, he's bringing in a new era, and he must have new containers. And Jesus was saying, I'm no reformer of Judaism. That's not what I am. I'm not this rabbi who's bringing in some reformation to the system that is. He says, I'm bringing something in that's powerful and explosive, and it's going to happen. And these old wineskins, these old ways of thinking, these old ways of thinking you can measure up and earn God through the exteriors, these things are all out. Jesus said, I'm bringing something new and something different, the gospel, the gospel of grace. And this is, as I said, is going to become more clear as you go through the New Testament and you see how this works it out, itself out in the first century because you have these guys named the Judaizers with good intentions. Probably they thought these Gentile believers, they should have at least some order and some Judaism and some of these valuable traditions in their life. And so we're going to make you keep these things of Judaism. And Paul and others in the, in the gospel say, no, absolutely not. And they met with councils and they determined, you know, we can't combine these. We can't force these things on them because that's not part of what Jesus was bringing in. And so, practically for us, first thing, the gospel. Does your gospel combine your efforts to the grace of Jesus? Plain and simple. Do you think that it's God's grace plus your efforts, some way these two work together to bring your righteousness. That's not the point. It's not the point of the gospel. How is your faith like old and new wineskins? Are you trying to combine some of these elements even of this mindset? Maybe you know the gospel is definitely not about your works, your efforts, you contributing and adding to it. But what does your life say? Is it like the Pharisees? It's, it's, it's full of anger and pride and bitterness and cold religiosity. It's joyless. It's, you know, I'm, I'm holier than God, and so therefore, you know, how dare anyone ever do anything, you know, that I don't approve of because my standard is God's standard, and therefore you should live up to that standard. And you come across with this arrogance about you, and you parade your good works. You lack compassion for people. You say, you know, I, I love the sinner, but I hate the sin, but it really just comes out as just a hatred for people completely. You love the approval and praise of people. You reject correction. Anybody tries to say anything to you, how dare you, because I'm this. How dare you think you have any right to say anything to me? And so you think of yourself as very important, and what 
self-righteous people often do is they wallow in self-pity. Wallow in self-pity. Or are you looking to Jesus? Is it grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Your life in me, Jesus, that's my only hope. And that humbles us. Your life in me. I, I got nothing to offer. I got nothing. All right? I, I got nothing to contribute to making me more acceptable for God. It's all Jesus. Think how that changes your attitude and how you respond to people and the way you act to people and the joy that you have because it's not about you. It's all Jesus. It's about him working his way out through us. And so I, I came up with these questions. I found these on, on a Tim Challey's website, and I thought they were so good. It, it says, how to evaluate your humility and your meekness. And I kind of alluded to these, but let me just read these and think through these. When someone wrongs you, are you prone to lash out in anger? If so, does that anger express itself physically, verbally, or both? That's a sign of somebody who lacks humility. He's angry and lash out. Are people afraid to confront sin in your life because they fear your anger or your cutting words? Do your wife and children fear you? The next one, would your friends and family say that you are gentle? Would you say that you, you treat them with tenderness? Do you like to play the devil's advocate? Do you like a good argument? What would your social media presence indicate on that question? You see, those are signs of pride, not humility. Those are signs that you have something to defend that you are about you. Rather than Galatians 2.20, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This life I'm living in the body, on Facebook, on social media, Monday, at work, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he's in me, and he's living through me, through the person of the Holy Spirit. I said I'd come back to this. I think it's important. Effort is not the opposite of grace, okay? Effort is not the opposite of grace. I think there's a lot of people who think that. They think grace is pretty much just let go, let God. You know, I'm, I'm going to sit here in my lazy chair spiritually, and God will work, and his grace is, is so awesome and so amazing that I just don't do anything. Well, Scripture teaches us something totally different. You look through Scripture... You see so many imperatives on, here, do this, do that, don't do this. So how do these two things match up? The Pharisee's attitude, and if you have this attitude, then you can expose it for what it is. It's of Satan, is that I work to earn God's love. I work to earn God liking me more, accepting me more, or being more proud of me through my efforts. As opposed to, we work because we are loved. We make effort because we are loved. We kill sin because God's holy and we want to be holy. And so we put a fight club in place and we put uh, different things into our lives that allow us to have checks and balances on how we're doing with our money and how we're doing in, with our lust and our eyes. And we put these things in place around us because we understand that we want to be holy as Jesus is holy. We want to live like Jesus and therefore, we make whatever efforts necessary out of love for Jesus. 
And here's the thing. If, if you have no intimacy, no relationship with Jesus really to speak of, yet you start putting these things into place in your life to create parameters around you so you won't be ungodly and you will be holy, you'll become a Pharisee very, very quick. Very quick. You'll become super self-righteous in your actions, your attitudes. But you begin to spend time humbly every day or often with your maker and creator, with Jesus Christ, humbly before him, looking in his word, reflecting upon the gospel, and seeing how much he loves us, and nothing can separate us from his love. I promise you that you're going to have a whole different attitude, and God will begin to chisel those things off of your life and off of my life, the things that are full of pride and the things that we respond because we know that we are just filled up with ourselves most of the time. And God will begin to expose that. And he'll begin to make us more like Jesus. Will there be failures? Absolutely. Will there be struggles with anxiety? You can count on it. But you know what? We have Jesus. We have union with Christ. And we incorporate spiritual disciplines like spending time with him, consistency in prayer, and fasting. And you'll see your life grow more and more like Christ. None of us will arrive. If you've arrived, please don't come back next Sunday because I've got nothing for you, okay? Or if you've arrived, none of us have arrived. None of us have arrived. And we remember that. And we stay humble before our Creator God. And it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray for those who find themselves today that have fallen into the lies of the devil, thinking they can contribute to their salvation through their effort and their work. God, I pray that today you'll bring them humbly to you to, to seek your forgiveness only through Jesus and to cry out and to call upon the name of the Lord and they'll be saved, your scripture says. God, I pray for those in here who struggle with attitudes of, as we all do, being self-righteous and coming across as a Pharisee. God, I pray that you will help us to just continue to seek you and know you through your word. And God, through community, through the body of Christ. And God, for those who right now are, are struggling with joy, for one reason or another, God, help them to pray, even as the psalmist prayed, restore to me the joy of my salvation. God, I pray that you will help them to humbly be, humble themselves before you, and you said you will lift them up in due time. And God, I pray that you'll expose the pride of our church, expose the pride of our lives. God, make us more and more who we should be as people of your kingdom, carrying the banner of Jesus only. God, may we decrease and you increase. And God, I pray you'll just allow us to truly begin through the power of the Holy Spirit to incorporate disciplines into our life that will allow us to become more like you daily and often being in your word and being in prayer and, and dependent upon you. And God, in, even in this idea of fasting and um, God, even this once a month, God, that maybe... Uh, each one of us will incorporate that into the, our lives so that we can clear space out where we can truly, truly seek you and expose those areas of our life where we're seeking first our kingdom instead of your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name.